Ovid's Flea by P.J. Edgel. Episode 8. Jesse. It had been a strange ending to that meeting, but he had so much to think about he moved on from that feeling. What a coup! Two therapists. Jesse had often thought about seeing a therapist, but he couldn't bear the thought of anyone in Michigan knowing anything about him, so he had never sought one out. The Kimberly woman's brutal honesty had felt good. The verbal slap he needed that woke him from a malaise. For the first time, he felt in control of his life. The boy was silent, and he doubted whether he'd ever speak again. He felt relieved. Jesse looked at his watch, 2.45 p.m. He could get an earlier flight home and be with Annie and the kids. He'd go back to his wife. Ah, oh, he felt a new feeling. He felt peace. He held a cab and sat in the back seat, thinking, It wasn't perfect, but what was perfection? You made it yourself. He'd make it his perfection, but this time consciously. Kimberly had given him the tools to navigate the situation. He'd go back and try and live as a straight, model husband. For a while, anyway, and then when it became too much before the boy could wake up and push him to places he didn't want to be, he'd consciously go and find a guy, release himself, and go back to Annie. He knew he could do it and make it work. He loved Annie and wanted to be with her for the rest of his life. And if this was the way to do it, he could do it. She was beautiful and exotic. She made him laugh, and he could be himself with her. Well, almost all of himself. But it was enough. At the airport, he got an earlier flight, which would put him back at the Detroit airport by 5.43. He'd be home by 7.15, able to surprise Annie and the kids and have a good evening with his family. And then the long-awaited date with his wife. He bought souvenirs for the kids. He boarded the plane, and as he turned the corner to enter the cabin, he saw Mark and stopped short, as opposed to the usual feeling of longing and desire that came up whenever he'd see him. His shame rose up, but didn't linger in his chest to weigh him down, but turned to rage. So intense that he felt an intense urge to punch Mark, to bruise and bloody those rugged frat boy features. He was indignant at Mark's oblivion and wanted restitution. Jesse's fists grew tight around his backpack and his eyes narrowed. He willed Mark to look up, and as he did, the flight attendant tapped him from behind. Is there something wrong, sir? Viola. Viola knew it was a little dysfunctional, but she was actually relieved to be concentrating on someone else's problems and not her own for once. Though comparatively, Kimberly's were a little surreal. Johnny, who Viola had met only a handful of times prior to his death, suddenly still felt very much alive for all the devastation he seemed to leave in his wake. And now this weird connection with the stranger Jessie. Marion herself could not have created a better torture for her daughter. Kimberly continued to cry on her shoulder and breathe into the bag, but Viola couldn't take comfort in her friend's problems forever and found her mind wandering towards the questions that burned in her own mind and the realization that she had to deal with real life. When was she going to tell Julian the truth? And when was she going to discuss the money, her half of the business with Kimberly? 
She had been so disdainful of it ten years before. She wondered what Cumberly's anger would have done with it. Her mind flipped again this time to Julian. She'd left him at the party. She knew Tommy would keep an eye out for him, but she felt guilty. The day's theater had fed her. Famished for this excitement and intrigue, she had gobbled up the brunch, Jesse, and now this bizarre twist, but at what cost? Her motherly instincts kicked into overdrive, and she felt a shift. She had to find Julian. In that instant, she felt an overwhelming need to protect him. Kimmy, I have to find Julian. She gently disengaged from Kimberly, whose breathing had returned to normal. Oh my God, Vi, I'm so sorry. I forgot about him. We'll call Tommy and- I've got to tell him. She cut Kimberly off. The desire for truth was overwhelming her. She didn't know if it was Jesse or just being back in New York, but there couldn't be things unsaid, untruths left for misinterpretation. I've got to tell him the truth about this place, our lives, who we were, are. I'm not sure I, we are anymore. This wasn't quite how she expected to bring the topic up, but there it was. She stared at Kimberly, who stared right back, and in that instant became Kimberly of ten years before, confident of everything and her best friend. Nothing's changed, Vi. I never took your name off anything. The check you ripped up means the money's still there, and I was executor of your mother's will, so you're part of the money. From the sale of the house, I invested a sly smile crept across Kimberly's face. I suspected you'd be back, and if I do say so myself, I invested well. You, my love, are a wealthy woman. The old, confident Kimberly laughed. Viola stared at Kimberly. One part of her worry melted, and tears started coming down her face. Annie. The kids were singing at the top of their lungs, and Annie's head felt like it was splitting open. Her mother-in-law had suggested that as Jessie was away, that they come over for dinner so that Annie didn't have to cook. She gladly took her up on it. The kids would be spoiled, and she could sit with her father-in-law and talk about art, or he'd read her something from the Sunday New York Times. She knew her mother-in-law thought she was a useless homemaker and mother, but Annie was successful at her art, so she didn't let it get to her. She never wanted to be Susie homemaker like her mother-in-law. Besides, it's not what Jessie wanted from her anyway. Her head continued to pound. She didn't want to take anything because of the feeling she might be pregnant. That thought was the only thing that prevented her from yelling at the kids. She was so excited and wanted to tell Jessie... They would do what they'd done for the first two, take the pregnancy test together. She couldn't wait for him to get home. She couldn't wait to see him. He was due home by nine. She knew by then she'd have the kids in bed and she'd wait for him at the door and throw herself into his arms. She pulled into the driveway of her in-law's house and the kids shouted, Grandma! as her mother-in-law came to the door. Only a few more hours, she thought. Julian. Xavier had successfully extricated Julian from the party without too many encounters with the weird New York crowd. He had said goodbye to Uncle Tommy, who had asked him repeatedly if he was okay as he searched his face. Julian told him it was pure exhaustion. 
Julian asked about the whereabouts of Viola and Kimberly, to which Tommy shrugged and said he had called several times but had received no answer, so assumed they had landed either at a bar or at home to continue catching up. Are you sure you're okay? Did you have a good time? Uncle Tommy, it was amazing. A great first day in New York. He kissed him and left with Xavier. Once outside, he nearly stumbled from pure exhaustion. I think that took everything out of me. I assume he knows. Damn, that was dumb. Of course he does. The whole fucking world knows. He looked up at Xavier and said, Excuse me for cursing, Xavier. You've been nothing but kind to me. You don't deserve such language. My mama the whore wouldn't like to hear that. <laughs> Ain't that ironic? Xavier laughed heartily. <laughs> you are very funny. Look, I'll say it again. I don't know Viola personally, but from what I hear, she's a pretty amazing human being. Can I ask you what might sound like a stupid question? Sure. What is it exactly that you're upset about? Do you care that she slept with men and made money from it? Julian thought about this. Did he care? Not particularly. He'd never thought about prostitution one way or another. Despite his father, Viola had raised him to live and let live. Then he thought about his father. Had he known what she did? He must have. Or did he find out, which is why he was so angry and violent? He never thought of himself as religious, so he didn't think that was where the basis of his outrage came from. Xavier broke through his thoughts. I know it was a good question, but did you want to use your outside voice and talk to me? This is what Julian liked about Xavier, his way of phrasing things. He smiled a little as he said, I'm trying to figure it all out. I wasn't raised with any religion or nothing, so I know that ain't it. I guess it's like, I thought we had a bond, something that meant there were no secrets. I hate the fact that the whole world knew this big thing about her, and I'm her son. Okay, stepson, but as close as we were, ah, I mean, she's the only mother I ever knew. I just can't believe she didn't tell me. I feel like she made a fool of me, you know, by bringing me here when y'all all know, and then here I am, the hick, and I don't know shit. They had walked. And now Julian looked up and saw they were at the townhouse. He didn't know whether to laugh or cry when he saw the sign, Kimberly Simon, Psychotherapy. Xavier looked up and seemed to understand. He caught Julian by surprise by grabbing his face, being careful not to touch his wounds. Listen to me. Give your mother the benefit of the doubt. She loves you. And she had her reasons for not telling you about her past, but that's the point. It's in the past. You're here, now, and you're safe. Julian looked intently into Xavier's eyes. He felt the blood creeping up his face. He hadn't really paid attention to how attractive Xavier was until this moment. He wanted to kiss him, but, but he was mad at his mother. He wondered what the two had to do with the other, but he couldn't think with Xavier holding his face and staring into his eyes this way. Xavier released him, and Julian's head cleared. Xavier fished out his wallet and handed Julian his card. You'll be okay. And if not, here's how to contact me. You have a friend in the city. 
And with that, he turned and left Julian. Julian watched him leave. His mind ping-ponging between unrelated facts, Xavier was attractive. His mother had hidden a secret from him. Xavier had touched him tenderly. He didn't know how Kimberly fit into all of this. Everyone knew. Xavier had known. No one seemed to have a problem with it, did he? He faced the townhouse, making his way up the front steps, reading the sign that mocked him. As he entered the townhouse, he could hear Viola and Kimberly in the kitchen. He was in unfamiliar territory of being angry at Viola. Indignation at her betrayal rose in his chest as he heard her voice. The emotion felt strange on his skin, accompanied by a sense of power that grew out of the anger. When he'd been angry with Redfield and Riley Marie, he felt weakened and powerless by their betrayal, their union cutting him off from a familiar life support. But with this, he was indignant at her lack of trust in him. And as he stood listening, he realized that it bothered him that he heard it from the ridiculous fat man, Drew, the nail in the coffin of mockery. Before they'd walked into that party, she should have told him so, so that when the party was dissecting him, he wasn't at a disadvantage. She had compromised him. As he approached the kitchen, he heard Viola on the phone. Did he talk to Drew? That man is venom. Tommy, that could have upset him. Drew could have said anything to him. He could have told him. Yes, Tommy. But it should have fucking been through me. How? Julian walked through the kitchen door. Mark. Mark was settled nicely on the plane. He'd managed to grab an earlier flight back home. Apart from Kimberly and ending the Jesse situation, it had been a disappointing weekend. The biggest shock was Carlos. He couldn't believe that the guy had basically unwound. He kept thinking to himself, you never really know people. As Mark mused on the weekend and the tremendous disappointment of not seeing one of Carlos's magnificent cars, he felt a presence standing over him and looked up to see Jesse staring at him as he boarded the plane. But it didn't seem to be the Jesse he knew before. It was a different man. The look in his eyes seemed to be that of... Mark was having a hard time recognizing it, but could it be loathing? It certainly wasn't soft or adoring. It was a hard unflinching gaze that made Jesse seem tough, Mark decided. He'd never met a tough Jesse, but it wasn't enticing or exciting. Seeing Jesse like this was making him uncomfortable. He looked away. A flight attendant asked Jesse a question, and the moment passed. He continued down the aisle. Mark had no idea where he was sitting and didn't look back, but the feeling of Jesse's loathing stayed on him and made him feel uncomfortable, like Carlos's tears. Viola. She called Tommy, who read her the riot act for disappearing from the party. When she asked about Julian, he said he just left. Fine, I think something's up. He said he was okay, but he seemed, I don't know, upset. I should have never left him there alone. Who was he talking to? Actually, a really nice young man from Jerry's law firm. Drew's nephew. Did he talk to Drew? That mine is venom. Oh, shit, Vi. I don't know. Tommy, that could have upset him. Drew could have said anything to him. He could have told him. 
and in that instant she knew. Tommy knew too and said, I'm so sorry, Vi. Shit, I should have paid more attention, but he was going to find out at some point. Yes, Tommy, but it should have been through me. How dare! Kimberly had poked her, and she looked up to see Julian standing in the doorway. Without saying goodbye, she hung up the phone. She locked eyes with Julian. You're right, Ma. It should have been you that told me. How do you think it made me feel to be the only one in the room who didn't know how y'all made your money? He wasn't shouting, but his voice was raised and had a steeliness to it that reminded her of her husband. That frightened her the most. He was in command of her, so much so she barely registered Kimberly mumbling as she left that she was going for a walk and slipping out the room. Julian continued his gaze, steady in its anger. If you'll forgive the language, ma'am, it was a shitty way to find out your mama's a whore. He didn't break his gaze with her, and the words stung so much she stepped away from him, grabbing her face as if he had hit her. Julian! She didn't know this person. If she said his name, would he return? Julian, he continued. You made me feel like a fool in front of all those goddamn people. They all laughed with that fat clown Drew, queen of the parade, eh? In a bikini and some wig, oh, he loved that. He flat out asked me if I was out of the closet. Julian, Drew's an asshole. Everyone knows it. Everyone, eh? In the same way, everyone knows you ain't a psychologist, you a prostitute. Oh, that's right. Everyone except your son. Total strangers know the truth, but not me. Viola found her voice and reason. Julian, for God's sake, stop and think. When the hell was I supposed to tell you? In between beatings from your father? We had a 21-hour road trip. But instead, you let me walk into that room with all those freaks just staring at me like I'm some goddamn hick. You... Yeah, it don't feel good, do it, boy? Anything Viola had been feeling was now replaced with a frigid feeling of fear. Her husband was there in the doorway of her Manhattan kitchen with a shotgun in his hand. Her husband, drunk and waving the rifle. He may be a lousy shot, but he wouldn't miss in this small space. How the f- You always underestimated me. You always thought I was some kind of hick that couldn't figure out that if you was ever going to leave with my faggot son, you'd come hightailing it right back here. Same house, same shit. Girl, you ain't very smart after all, are you? Viola was speechless. The sound of his voice had frozen her blood in its veins. She suddenly felt cold and her chest felt heavy from the pounding of her heart. She never thought he'd follow them. She thought he'd be so lazy or drunk, he'd talk about it for years, but never follow through. She had indeed underestimated him. Her mind began to engage again and race. They'd never make it out of here alive if they made a run for it. He was bound to hit one of them. And with that gun, it wouldn't be a graze or a flesh wound. Is it possible that the alcohol could have slowed him down enough so that they could get away from him? The alcohol was making him talk and the venom continued to pour from his mouth, berating her for what he'd not cared about ten years prior. Yeah, I should have told you I brought home a whore, boy. 
Maybe she wouldn't have turned you into a faggot. Maybe if you had her, you'd still be a man. What came from his mouth was vile. And Viola, even though she'd heard him rain down insults and abuse before, had never heard such twisted logic. He was facing her, only addressing Julian with his words. But his eyes never left Viola. And even with all the hate, she knew that he wanted her. Could she weaken him by softening, professing love or desire? She had never done it before, even to stop the beatings. She had reason to keep her pride, but now she thought, to keep alive, she'd do anything. Julian. At the sound of his father's voice, Julian's anger at Viola had disintegrated. Destroyed by the antifreeze his father's sudden arrival had put into Julian's vein. How could they have been so stupid as to suppose that out of pure hateful revenge he wouldn't follow them? But would he really kill them? Here? Julian knew the answer before the question had finished forming in his mind. Yes. He'd kill them and be back on the road. Back south before Kimberly could find them. And he'd never be caught. Julian listened to the vile words coming from his father's mouth. The alcohol had turned his indignation at their running away to a pure hate. That's mission was to extract painful reparations for the shame they caused him. Though his father was angry with him, Julian knew that Viola was the greater part of his wrath. In his mind, what she had been before even knowing him was a personal affront. As if she'd planned it, his eyes were boring into her. And Julian wondered if he was truly not paying attention to him. He worried that a sudden move would make him shoot as his finger was looped around the trigger casually. Julian knew he couldn't overpower him. Alcohol had always made him stronger. He spotted a knife set in a butcher block on a counter next to his father. If he could get to the knife set, then what? He thought. I'll do what I have to do. I have a chance. We have a chance for a life, a life of my choosing. He looked at Viola, who seemed to understand when he glanced at the knife set. But he knew enough to not get caught by his father looking at Viola, so he quickly lowered his head and gaze. Seconds later, Julian was startled to see the barrel of the gun in his lowered gaze as his father put it against his chin. He heard Viola let out a strangled scream. What's the matter with you, boy? What you so down in the mouth about? Ain't got no one to love? Your mama over here turned you into a right sissy, didn't she? You don't belong here, boy. They eat country boys like you and me. He made no sense as he rambled, waving the gun around. And this hellish place nearly killed me. It will kill you too. His mood seemed to shift, moving to nostalgia as he looked around the kitchen. But in the beginning, it don't seem that way. His attention suddenly diverted from Viola. He looked solely at Julian, tenderly telling his son a story. The shift threw Julian off, suddenly unsure of his plan for the knife. This was a man he hadn't seen in eight or nine years. His dad. But dad was here as a result of alcohol and nostalgia and was using a rifle as if it was a baton. Waving and poking it into Julian's chest for emphasis in his story. In the beginning, 
it's magical. Everything is. The streets, the women. It makes you feel like there ain't nothing that can touch you and nothing you can't have. Julian noticed that with his father's back turned on her, Viola had begun to move slowly towards the block of knives. Julian concentrated hard, trying to appear engrossed in his father's words as opposed to petrified. And when I met her, I would have never known, you know? She never seemed like the type of whore my mama warned me about. She was classy and smart. Man, she can make me laugh. With his father's words, Julian remembered the car ride back south after the wedding. They had laughed and sung songs. He remembered his father then as handsome and happy. And for the first time, he felt sorry for him. His mind clamored to remember where it had gone wrong. He looked at him earnestly, and from that sympathy he spoke. Go on. His father visibly softened, and his hand relaxed on the gun a little. But you know what they say, boy. A leopard never changes her stripes. She had to turn a trick, because she couldn't help herself. Viola. Viola had tried not to think what it meant that her husband was talking about her as if she was already dead. As his alcohol-induced tale unfolded, she had listened, looking for an opportunity to speak and get the waving rifle away from Julian's chest. But she knew from experience that the nostalgia could turn without warning into violence, and she needed to be prepared. So she inched towards the knives so slowly that she wanted to appear as though she was not moving. It was taking forever, and she didn't know how much he had to drink or when he would turn. Her mind raced wondering if this was a smart plan. And where was Kimberly? If she walked in, would he just start shooting? There were too many questions and every answer was frightening. Inching towards the knives seemed the only thing to do. He was still talking, telling Julian of her betrayal. She'd almost forgotten the turning point, where it had all begun to unravel. But listening to his revisionist history was bringing it all back. His version, of course, was sordid, and she wanted to scream and defend herself as she listened to his tale unfold. Her husband had chosen his friend over her. He had believed his story, his version of something she would never do, something the so-called friend had invented out of his own jealousy. She had met her husband and his friend together in New York back in the days when she and Kimberly had gone out, had a group of friends. His friend had flirted first and never forgiven her for rejecting him. Even once she had moved south, the friend's jealousy continued. When she told her husband of his friend's advances and behavior, he accused her of thinking too much of herself. In hindsight, she should have left then, her marriage foundation unsure. But at the time, she swept it to the back of her mind, ignoring the pain in her heart at her husband's misplaced loyalty. She continued her snail's journey towards the knives as her husband's version unfolded, fueled by alcohol and a mind she knew only too well. Boy, I'm going to tell you that your friends are going to treat you better than 
any woman is ever going to treat you. If it hadn't been for my friends watching my back, she would have lied to me and humiliated me. They heard the rumors about her being fast and loose and bragging at the beauty shop about her men. You only got a taste, but I lived and swallowed that bitter pill for a long time. The rumors got so bad, a buddy helped me catch her in the act. Walked in on him, just as he told me. She wouldn't be able to help herself. Viola saw Julian's face, and she knew he was believing his father. And the knives, still miles away, became a useless journey. Her voice Silence too long and indignant, rose up and yelled as she lunged at her husband. He wasn't your friend. He forced himself on me. You wouldn't listen. She threw herself at him, grabbing at the gun. With one hand, she tried pushing the gun away, and with the other, she clawed at his eyes, face, anything, wildly trying to stop him. She knocked the gun, trying to redirect it away from Julian, but she didn't know where the shot could have gone when she heard and felt the shudder of a gun discharge. Plaster fell. She saw Julian out of the corner of her eye, and she knew he'd not been hit. He was trying to get to them, she screamed, Julian, run! Viola and Henry were still struggling, her anger strengthening her and the liquor weakening him. She had jumped on him, still trying to grab the gun. Henry's movements were wild, uncoordinated. He was relying on his size, but she refused to be intimidated. She knocked the gun again and heard two shots. Her husband fell like a tree and Viola clung to his side, landing underneath him. His eyes open. They bore into hers. She felt his heart beating against her arm, his weight pinning her to the ground. Her head squirmed to get away from his gaze, but she noticed it didn't stir, and the beat against her arm slowed. She felt a warmth spreading on her. His whiskey breath stopped spraying her. Henry, she whispered but he was dead. Kimberly. Kimberly lay on her back in the doorway of the kitchen, taking stock of her pain and trying to move parts of her body. She figured out it was her right arm that was the source. She couldn't feel her right hand and had no idea if she was still holding the gun. She'd been aiming for him, but when his bullet hit her arm, she now assumed... She had no idea where she'd actually hit and prayed it wasn't Viola or Julian that she shot. There was an eerie silence. Her throat was dry and she tasted blood on her lips. Vi, she croaked. Julian? Yes. Yes. They both spoke. She saw Julian stand up and go over out of her sight. She assumed to Viola. She heard noises and Viola crying, saying, He's dead. I don't know how. I shot him. Kimberly responded. She still didn't move from her back, and Viola and Julian appeared above her, both unhurt. Miss Kim, you've been shot. With the kitchen towel, Julian gently applied pressure to her arm. Can I sit up? Strangely, she felt like Julian was in charge. If you feel up to it, you don't appear to be hurt anywhere else. He helped her up and started to lead her out of the kitchen, glancing back at his father's body. We best go in the living room and call the police. Come on, Ma. Bewildered, Viola followed. Kimmy. Why do you have a gun? When did you ever... I just don't understand. It was one of our rules. 
You hate guns. Ma! Julian was sharp with it. Sit down. Viola sat obediently. He picked up the phone, dialed 911, and then he called someone named Xavier. Julian. He was operating on automatic pilot. He was sure it was stuff he'd seen on TV. Call the police, don't touch anything. There must have been others, but he couldn't think of them. He just did them. He never went back in the kitchen. He never saw his father's body again. He sat in the living room with Viola, Kimberly, and the police, answering questions. Xavier appeared and stood in the background. Uncle Tommy, too. Paramedics attended to Kimberly's arm which, despite the blood, was to everyone's relief a flesh wound. They told their whole story. His face was photographed for his healing bruises. Kimberly showed her gun license and her license to practice psychology. Viola cried, describing her marriage and the beatings. Julian participated as if watching a play. He had no emotion towards anyone. Viola, Kimberly or even his dead father. He felt blank. He thought he should feel something for Viola's tears, but they left him strangely numb. And then he wondered if he should be crying himself. It was his father after all, but yet for that quick memory this afternoon of their fun car ride back from New York, he'd never been his dad, or even daddy. The police left, and Uncle Tommy and Xavier took over. He packed them all up and hailed a cab to his place. Julian was thankful that no one from the party was left. Tommy's partner greeted them at the door. They sat around the dining room table, and Tommy poured them all drinks, including Julian. He wasn't used to a strong drink, but it made him start to feel again. Tommy finally broke the silence that they had all been operating under. So I guess that gun came in handy after all. Kimberly, looking into her glass, just said, Yeah. The silence fell again, and then Kimberly sighed. I'm not sure if I'll ever recover. I killed someone. I'm so sorry. Julian was surprised that Kimberly began to cry. He stared at her. He never really cared about her, finding her self-absorbed and cold, but her tears were genuine. Miss Kim, you did what you did, and I'm grateful. In the mood he was in, I doubt my ma and I would have made it out of there alive. Julian looked at her earnestly, but he couldn't bring himself to touch her. She looked at him and attempted a smile. Julian knew she was trying, too. I got a question for you. How come we didn't hear you? I thought you'd left. I started to, but ran up to my room for a pack of cigarettes. I went up the front stairs. I, I, I guess he went. I, I guess he'd come down the back. By the time I came back down, I heard his voice, so I grabbed my gun. But honestly, I wasn't sure if you'd hurt Viola in your anger. Viola finally spoke. It's soundproofed, so no one would ever be disturbed. Julian looked at Viola for the first time, and finally he felt something. He felt the click of familiarity, of love, of warmth. He suddenly was grateful for her for what she'd done for him. He slid off his chair to his knees at her feet. She reached for him, gathering him in, and hugged him. He held on for dear life, and then the ache behind his eyes and the pain in his throat melted, and he cried. 
Viola stroked his back and soothed him. It's okay. It's okay. She repeated and rocked a little as she stroked his back. He knew that she knew that for a millisecond he had felt something, not exactly love, but something for his father. Sympathy, maybe. He wasn't sure what, but she knew, and he had to explain. Ma, you've got to believe me. I never believed you did anything with anybody. I just, I just knew that he believed it, and for a second he was human. I could never not love you. I know. And when he died, he was human to me, too. Weird, isn't it? Jesse. He made it home in record time from the airport. After seeing Mark on the plane, his newfound peace had been disturbed, but he managed to get some of it back when he thought about surprising Annie and the kids with his early return. When he pulled in the driveway, he was surprised to see the house dark and Annie's SUV gone. But then he figured they were at his parents' house, as that was a pretty standard ritual when he was on a business trip. It's not that his mother thought Annie wasn't a great mother, but she worried that when Annie was working, or in a funk, that the kids wouldn't eat. He didn't know if he shared his mother's concerns, but if it gave Annie a break, he thought it was a good thing. He placed his bag on the chair and rifled through the mail on the counter. He saw Annie's iPod and decided to go down to the dock and finally hang the lights he'd bought for her. He went upstairs, changed into shorts with no shirt. Grabbing the iPod, he put the earphones in and headed towards the dock with the lights and an extension cord. He breathed an easy breath. Peace had descended upon his shoulders. He felt anointed, saved, even rescued, but by no one but himself. He had finally and consciously made the right choice. He moved of his own volition no longer a slave to the boy. He whistled to the song on the iPod, a U2 song about getting your life together. Until that moment, he'd never liked that song, feeling as if Bono was lecturing him, but now he understood. He was out of his stuck moment. His life was together. As he approached the tree, he threw the heavy extension cord up to go over the branch. The cord looped upwards, heading towards the branch. Jesse's eyes followed the cord, but the throw was short, and instead of going over the branch, the heavy cord hit the nest and then fell down almost at Jesse's feet, followed by a trail of angry bees. There was barely time to move. He knew he'd never make it to the safety of the house and instead decided to head for the water. If he could get under it, it he wouldn't be stung. But even as he thought that, he knew it was too late. The first sting hit, and it felt like a bullet. He attempted to swat at it, the movement as futile as swatting a bullet would be. With each sting, he jerked, surprised, but the searing pain never relented. His body started to surrender to the poison, his movements losing their sophistication and control. With the stings that followed, too many to count, he felt immediately lightheaded and nauseous. Jesse still attempted to swat. It seemed an instinct to protect himself, to fight, but his movements without coordination or control were useless and simply propelled him closer and closer to the dock's edge. His eyes began to itch and he felt his throat closing. Jesse's legs were buckling. With all his might, he tried to remain standing, but the attempt made his knees lock, which made him lurch forward as the dock started to swirl and fade from his sight. The stings continued, and he heard the bees buzz his name. Jesse, you fool. And the stings became more vicious. 
he fell off the dock into the water and felt a sharp pain where his head hit the dock, snapping his neck violently forward. He felt the blood begin to ooze, and as he descended towards the bottom of the lake, he caught a glimpse of a red trail. The faces of Annie and the kids floated before him, and he felt his heart shatter. His mind screamed, fighting and arguing with the bees. The boy woke up, roused by the ruckus of the bees and Jesse's indignation. Realizing his imminent release, he laughed and shimmied, delighted to finally be free. Jesse knew the fight was futile and surrendered to the water, the bees, and the boy. Kimberly. Saturday. Johnny had been strangely silent since Kimberly had killed Viola's husband. Truly killing a man made her realize that she had done nothing more than disappoint Johnny. She was unfamiliar with the feeling that she woke up with every morning, and on the sixth day since the incident, she identified the feeling as peace. She marveled at how luxurious it felt. She didn't know its boundaries, but decided to test them by calling her mother. Hi, Mom. Kimberly? You have another daughter? Don't be smart, dear. I was actually going to call you. I have some sad news. Annie Leventhal's husband, I think his name was Jesse, died. And there is the boundary of peace. Guilt at her behavior to Jesse flooded back and she writhed in her bed. Kimmy, are you there? Yes, Mom. How did he... Tears burning the back of her throat. Oh, it's incredibly tragic. Some sort of accident. He's apparently deathly allergic to bees and got stung down on their dock. Apparently Annie was supposed to have an exterminator come and something happened and her husband came back early. I just don't know. It's just such a mess. Oh, and she's pregnant. Apparently, she was going to tell him that night. Have you ever heard anything so sad, Kimmy? Yeah, Mom, I'm here. Just, just taking it all in. Kimberly felt guilty for the relief she felt. Her tears fell for Annie now. I feel so bad for her. I wish there was something I could do. Mark. Julia had an annoying habit of commenting on what she read in the paper and then, uninvited, would read the paragraph or sentence aloud. It drove Mark crazy, and as many times as he'd asked her not to do it was as many times as she ignored his requests. Oh my God, it says here, Jesse Sorrell drowned last Sunday night. We know him, Mark. His son plays peewee soccer with Dylan. That is so sad, Mark. Mark, are you listening? Mark didn't look up from his food or the sports section propped up against the coffee pot. Really? That's terrible. He was on my flight back from New York. You know Carlos's daughter and granddaughter were killed in a car accident a few months ago? I found out when I was in New York last week. I took him out for brunch. He was a wreck. Julia put down the paper and reached for Mark's hand over the table. Honey, that was a really nice thing to do. I'm proud of you. You think so? You are? Mark was coy with his wife. Yes, I do think that was a lovely thing to do. 
Julia leaned over and kissed him passionately. Her hand moved from his cheek down his body with a decided goal in mind. You're a good man, Mark Harrington. Viola. Every morning in the shower, Viola scrubbed her chest, belly, and her right shoulder in particular. Everywhere her husband's blood had touched her and where his head fell after his last breath. Then, after a thorough cleaning, until her skin was nearly raw, she would shudder, wrap herself in a towel, and stare at her reflection. She thought, I'm free, but her heart never fully filled with joy. It was still too foreign and made her feel slightly sick. It was true that her life was neatly wrapped up beyond her wildest dreams. But was a violent death a happy ending? It is what it is. You had to get here somehow, her half-happy heart would say. She would respond, Give me time, I'll get there. Her mind persisted in wandering, and with ghostly melancholy, looked for something to be afraid of, but it could find nothing except the unknown future, which seemed lacking next to the past. Then her half-happy heart would say, I guess you have no other choice but to be happy. Join me? And her melancholy side would shudder at the thought and relent a little, and her happiness would grow. Occasionally, her melancholy would find her dreams where she would relive the horror of her past ten years over again, and only then would it be satisfied, trying to take her happiness. But happiness once found is tough and never gave in. Viola, Julian, and Kimberly settled into a life in the other house they had owned that Kimberly had all but abandoned. Kimberly shut down the business, giving each girl three months' salary until she figured out what to do. Viola wanted to go back to school and thought Kimberly should do the same. Julian wanted to become a psychologist, too. She imagined all three one day having a practice together. The thought made her laugh, and the laughter felt delicious and luxurious. At times it felt forbidden, but then as her happiness grew, she realized she was rich and she could afford it. Albert's Flea is voiced by Patrick Brewis, Anita Charlassier, Pat Jones, Dan Johnson, Harry Wetzel, Reed Winfrey, and Cian Yates. It is executive produced by Pavan Muzumdar with Jonathan Moises, Cian Yates, and Pat Jones in conjunction with Arden Park Productions, LLC. The sound engineer is Nicholas Sapunos, and the sound was designed by Nicholas Sapunos and Pat Jones. Ovid's Fleet was made possible by the generosity of independent sponsors as well as those through Kickstarter. The music is licensed through Grey Bliss Music or is a property of Arden Park Productions. Special thanks goes to Monica, Andrew, and Sophia Moore, Polish Scouting Studios and Anja Brozda, and Rick Gomes. To find out more about the world of Ovid's Flea, go to ovidsflea.com.